Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. We will probably only get as far as verse 11 tonight, but that's okay. Jesus again says in Matthew 6, verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, as we saw last week, this template for prayer or model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught has great depth. It points us to God and our need of salvation, and it also covers the daily prayer life of the believer. That's, that's one of the amazing things about this prayer. If you've ever really looked at it, as we've been talking on, and we're going to continue on that with that tonight, Jesus was teaching this model for prayer to a group of folks who weren't saved yet, so that they would know how to come to God and be saved, as you're going to see as we've been touching. But at the same time, this model for prayer is a wonderful template for prayer for those of us who are saved and have a relationship with God on a daily basis. So, Unfortunately, though, some have tried to say that since Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven, that this means that this prayer is only for believers. Because they say, if you're not saved, Satan is your father. And so if you do any study on this and you do any research, you'll find some people saying that since Jesus started with our Father in heaven, this prayer is only for believers. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that even though they have a strong point in what they say about Satan is your father and until you're saved, I'm going to show you from the context of the passage that they're using, the context of Matthew 6, and the whole of Scripture, that actually Jesus, when he says, pray our Father in heaven, wasn't talking just to believers. He was talking to everyone. And I can show you that. So let's go have some fun with that little journey. Go to John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47. This is the passage they love to quote and say, this proves that when Jesus said, pray our Father heart in heaven, that he was only talking to believers. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47, it says, These are the Jews. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were your Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. So when Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil, there are people that say, well, since Jesus said to pray, our father who art in heaven, this has to be a prayer only for believers. 
But as you've been hearing me teach earlier, Jesus is using this prayer to teach them to understand not only in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in chapter 5, he's showing them the depth of their sin. They thought they were keeping the law, but I say, and he's showing them that they're sinners. And now he's moving into how to turn to God and for his power to have this problem taken care of. And he's teaching them to pray to their heavenly father. As much as it is a prayer for those of us who are in a right relationship with our heavenly father, it's also a prayer that he's using to teach people how to get saved. And we're going to deal with that in a little bit. So to show you that, yes, he says, uh, Satan is your father. But also in this context, you're going to see him say that Abraham isn't their father. And then later on, he's going to say Abraham is their father. All right. So I'm going to lay you a foundation of this whole concept here. So stick with me. Look at John chapter 8 again. Look at verses 39 through 41. He said, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Listen to what he says. He says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Sounds like he's saying, if Abraham, Abraham's not your father. But listen to how he words it. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Let me ask you a tough question. Hopefully it's not that tough. Were the Jews... Abraham's children. Yes, they were descendants of Abraham. Yet he also says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. Do you see, do you see the difference? You can be a descendant of someone, yet not act like someone because you're not getting your influence from that person. You could actually be a physical descendant of one person, yet be following the influence of somebody else. Okay? Have you ever had your kids get kind of hung, hung with the wrong crowd. And then even though they're your children physically, they're acting like somebody else's kids. This is what he's saying to them. Because if you go on in chapter 8 and look at verses 48 through 59, in John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets, die, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Didn't we just see earlier that Jesus said, Abraham's not your father? But now he says, Abraham is. How could Abraham be their father, yet Abraham not be their father? I already told you. Exactly. Yes, definitely physical as opposed to spiritual, but even on a simpler level, physical descendancy from Abraham versus influence of Abraham and acting like Abraham. That's important. Because as you hopefully understand, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, God is the father of everyone. Would we not agree? The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, he made from one man every nation of men. The whole world has been created by God. So he is physically and descendantly, if you will, our father. Yet at the same time, 
because of sin, we choose to act like somebody else. And so we act like he's not our father. So this whole concept of using the term father, I want you to understand, is deep. And I'm going to show you that from a bunch more scriptures. Don't get sucked into, Jesus said, our father in heaven, and since people that are lost, their father's the devil. Therefore, Jesus is only pray, teaching people that are saved to pray. No, he's teaching the lost people to pray too. And I'll show you some more of that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, just in our context of our passage. Look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Remember how we've talked about the hypocrites? How the hypocrites were people that were pretending to be something they knew they weren't? And all through the scripture, the hypocrites were described as people who were lost. And they'd get no reward. The hypocrites love to do their righteousness before other people to be receiving their praises. And Jesus, talking about people who are hypocrites, still used the term father, referring to them. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, in the concept, he's talking about those who don't know God, yet he's still using the term father. And even more clearly in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive Forgive your trespasses. We hopefully understand from the concept here and from the, from the, 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 the uh, context, he's talking about people that are lost. If you're not willing to forgive others, the Bible says you're not saved. Plain and simple. And if you looked at Matthew chapter 18, the story of the, the man who had the great debt, and he went to the master and says, please forgive me this debt or I'll pay you back. And the guy forgives him the whole thing. And then he goes and sees a fellow servant who owes him less. And the guy says the same thing to him. I'll do my best to pay you back. And he chokes him and he won't forgive him. He throws him into prison. Word gets to the original guy who forgave him. And what did he do to him? He threw him into jail until he could pay the last penny. He didn't have salvation and lose it. He was forgiven, but his attitude toward his fellow servant showed he had never received the actual forgiveness. By the way, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. The world is forgiven. God was in Christ reconciling man to himself. The world, the scripture says, to himself. Not counting men's trespasses against them. And then Paul goes on and says, now we need to be reconciled to God. You want evidence that you're truly saved? You want evidence that you've been forgiven of your sins? You'll forgive others. And so when Jesus is talking about those who aren't willing to forgive their brother, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Is he using the term Father for someone that's lost? Yes, he is. The Scripture here doesn't say that he has to be saved in order to call him Father. Now, we'll go even a little bit deeper. Go to Genesis 45. Look at verses 1 through 8. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here Joseph said, God's made me a father to Pharaoh. Did Joseph give birth to Pharaoh? How did God make Joseph a father to Pharaoh? Depended on him. And actually, he was giving guidance and direction. And Pharaoh listened and acted like Joseph. Influence goes back to what he was saying earlier when he said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. But then later on, he said, Abraham is your father. You descended from him. But when you don't follow his influence, you don't act like he's your father. The world was created by God. And yes, he is their father. But because of sin, those apart from Christ act like who? The devil. And he becomes their father because of his influence, and they act like him. So the term father means a whole lot more than just gave birth to you. There's a depth to it. Let me give you another example. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, Look at verses 1 through 7. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials and the mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. You are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong and keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So here's one of the first times that we actually see God the Father referring himself as father to, to, a, to a human being. We've always heard God described in the Old Testament as the God of our fathers, God of our father Abraham, God of our father Isaac, God of our father Jacob. But I haven't done my full study on this yet, but I've done a lot. This is one of the first times I find God describing himself as a father to a human being. And he says about Solomon, I will become a father to him and he will be a son to me. Well, and as we've already talked about, didn't God kind of already... Wasn't he already his father because he gave birth to him, if you will? Of course. 
But now we're talking to that influence, that relationship. This is what God's trying to get them to see. God says, I, I, I've made you, but I want you to really become my children. I want you to really, not just physical descendants. I want you to let me be your influence, to become a father to you. And that's why Jesus is starting to teach them to pray to our father who is in heaven. That relationship, that influence. We see this with Paul's writings. Go to Philippians, sorry, Philemon. Go to Philemon. And if you don't know where Philemon is, it's okay. You just go to Hebrews and back up one book. Everybody can find Hebrews. If you can find Hebrews, you can find Philemon. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. Philemon, verses 8 through 10. Paul's writing to Philemon about this uh, slave Onesimus that ran away who got saved when he met Paul. And Paul says to Philemon in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Did Paul give birth physically to Onesimus while he was in prison? Then how did Paul become a father to Onesimus while he was in prison? How did Onesimus become his child? Through influence, which ended up in Onesimus getting saved. Solomon, sorry, Onesimus became a child of God but also came under the fatherhood, if you will, of Paul as he gets saved. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Paul clarifies it a little bit more here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. You see it? He's saying, I became your father when you got saved under my preaching and my teaching and the ministry God had. You got lots of guides and you got lots of people teaching you the word, but you were someone that got saved under my ministry, and I became a father to you. You heard what God had to say through me. You believed it. You responded to my influence, and you became a child of God. And in a sense, you became a child to me. That's why in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he cries out to the Galatian church who's thinking about going back to legalism. He says, oh, I'm in the pains of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. Again, the term father doesn't just mean physical descendancy, although that does. But there's a deeper understanding that Jesus is trying to get them to where they understand he doesn't want to just be the one who physically gave birth to you. He wants to be the one that you come to for influence and direction and that you respond to the fullness of him being your father. And as you know, even though he created the whole world because of sin... We've chosen to act like Satan. And he's become our father because we choose to follow his influence. But as you're going to see in a little bit, through Christ, we can truly become children of God. Not just the fact that he gave birth to me, 
but also that he spiritually made me his child. Just like Paul said, you became my children through the gospel. We became true children of God through the gospel as well. Yes, sir. Right, but again, Noah begat sons. I'm talking about looking for where one of the first times you see God describe himself as father. Oh, without question. I see what you're saying. Yes. And that's where we're going to be heading. That's where we're going to be going. There's a difference between descendant and actually a child, if you will. Go ahead. Go ahead. Matthew 23, 9. Right. Now, keep in mind, these were... Um, He's talking in the context here about the Pharisees, and he's talking about how they love to have all the attention and want you to follow them and all this kind of stuff. And he says, call no one father on earth in the sense of uh, you're my father when our true father's in heaven. Paul, as you know, set, seems to be breaking that rule when he says, I became your father. But if you remember, he says, imitate me as I what? imitate Christ. So I think the depth of what Jesus is saying is as much as we may have someone that we thank God that he used in our life to have us come to faith, we should not think they're the be all and end all. They should be pointing us to the true father. And that's what Paul does. He just points that out. You became my child through the gospel, but he also goes on later as he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If Paul actually said, hey, I'm your father, I'm the one that gave birth to you. I'm the one that shared you the gospel. You, you, you better not follow any other preacher. You need to follow me. Then he'd be breaking Matthew 23. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's a good question, though. I'm glad you brought that out. Go to 1 Chronicles 29. This is one of the first times, right after 1 Chronicles 28, where we saw God say about Solomon, I'm going to become a father to him, and he's going to become a son to me. In 1 Chronicles 29, we see... David, pray a prayer before the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says in verses 10 through 13. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all, to all. And when now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Here David prays and actually calls God our Father. But again, like Duke pointed out, there's a difference between him being your father and you being his child. Do you understand? It sounds crazy. It sounds deep, but it is. If you were children of Abraham, you'd be doing the things Abraham did. But later he says, Abraham is your father. So you can have God be your father, but you not be his child. Sounds crazy. But let me explain it a little bit more from the scriptures. Jesus, as you know, told a parable in Luke chapter 15. I love to call it the parable of the loving father. We call it the parable, the, the parable of the prodigal son. But who is the real story about in, in Luke 15? Is it a story about the prodigal son? No, there were two sons. It's about the loving father. I wish our Bibles had said the loving father. That's what the story's about. 
And he had two sons, one who rebelled but repented, and another who was self-righteous. But in the story, he's a father to both. But which one acted like his child? The one who repented and said, my father. The other one, we don't see that he ever repented, even though he had a father. He had no relationship. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 8 through 10. 1 John chapter 3. Here's where we start to see the depth of it starting to come out. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the, I love how you brought this out, Duke, children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see the depth of this where God can be your father, but you not be his child. God is the father of all. Yet, because of sin, we choose to become children, if you will, follow the influence of Satan and become children of the devil, acting like him. Oh, but God loves us enough that even though he gave birth to us in the sense of physical birth, but not spiritual birth yet, he wants to get us right with him spiritually. And he pursues us in that loving relationship as a father. Our loving father, our original father, creator, continually woos us back to him through repentance and faith and his provision for our sins in Jesus' son. And when we do respond in faith, we become permanent children of God and brothers of one another in Christ. Let me show you what the scripture says. Go to John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. Look at verses 10 through 14. John chapter 1, look at verses 10 through 14, and then verse 18. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Look at verse 18 again. Someone explain that to me. It says, no one's ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He's made him known. How could God be at his side? It's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But look closely. He's coming to reveal who? The Father. But you don't become his child until you receive him. Oh, but it gets even better than that. Because not only do you become his child through faith in Jesus Christ, when that happens, you become brothers 
with Christ. Let me show you. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 14 through 17. That's why, by the way, when we examine people's fruit, if you will, we shouldn't be listening to whether or not they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or a church member to see whether or not they're a Christian or a child of God. We should be looking for whether or not they act like their father. That's why 1 John 3 says, the one that acts like the devil is of the devil. The one who acts like the father is of the father and the child of God. Those of us who have been born of God, we don't make a practice of sinning. We still sin. First says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we don't sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But we don't make a practice of sinning because we can't. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> and when you're born again of the Spirit and you become a child of God and the Spirit comes to indwell you, when you sin, you don't love it. You hate it. And there's something that happens where you just can't keep doing it. Even though your flesh wants to and you struggle with it for years, you can't. But if someone says, hey, this is the way God made me and that's okay. They're children of the devil. Because they're not acting like their father in righteousness. In Romans chapter 8, look at verses 14. Look closely at verse 14 and following. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Did you catch that? Not all those who pray to prayer. Prayer is not magic. Not all those who are baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. Not all those who join a church. Church membership means nothing. All those who are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're his children, that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. And we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Folks, do you not understand, and we're going to touch on this in just a little bit, that when you become a child of God, you become a child of God. Let that sink in for a minute. The Rockefellers have nothing on what you have. Oh, and I love this. Go to John chapter 20. As you're turning to John chapter 20, we're going to at one verse, verse 14. Jesus has already said in John chapter 15, he says, I don't call you servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I call you friends. But it gets even better in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, after his death, after his resurrection, on that first day of the week, when Jesus has risen from the dead, John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to the woman, Mary, at the tomb, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my who? He doesn't say my friends, does he? He says, go to my brothers. And say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. When Jesus is teaching on prayer, he's using the term father to denote relationship and God's desired relationship with them. But if anyone is unwilling to come to the father and acknowledge his holiness and his kingdom come and receive the bread from heaven and will not forgive others, they are rejecting his fatherhood and choosing Satan to be their father. So is the prayer that Jesus teaches us here in the Lord's Prayer just for Christians? 
When he says, pray our Father who is art in, art in heaven. No, it's for lost people as well to understand their need of a relationship with the Father. And that's as you're going to see. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. That's why in the full context here, you'll see that the first and foremost thing that he's pointing out is their sin problem. Their need for a relationship with the Father because of his holiness and their sin. That's why he says, our Father who art in heaven, verse 9, hallowed be your name. We've already dealt with that. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're going to touch on that in just a second. And then he goes on and says, give us this day our daily bread, which we're going to touch on tonight. And he wasn't talking about, I need a burger. You're going to see later on, he cares about that stuff. But he teaches on that later. When he says, give us this day our daily bread, he's clearly pointing to Jesus in this prayer. And I'll show you scripturally why. But then he goes on and says what? And forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he goes on and says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The first and foremost purpose of the Lord's Prayer was to help people realize how to get right with God. Go ahead, Jim. It's another whole message for another whole time. But let me just say this to you. When you won't forgive yourself, it's the highest level of pride. It's the highest level of pride because what you're really saying is I should never have done that. I won't forgive myself. I should never have. You're so prideful. That's why you won't forgive yourself, which is sad in another whole message. That's why in this prayer right after he says, look, our father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. He teaches us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 7. Again, there's a duality in this teaching here on his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to touch on it briefly at the very end of this section that Jesus is teaching us to pray about his coming kingdom on the earth. But there's a spiritual depth to this before that. We don't just pray for his kingdom to come to the earth, although he's teaching us to do that. There's a spiritual depth to this as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 7. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air. Remember how we were children of Satan, following his influence, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Even though God was your father, you were children of wrath. Because it's only when you receive his influence that you become his child, even though he's your father. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He starts talking about this kingdom thing. Go to Colossians. You're in Ephesians. Turn over two books to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And he's delivered us from the domain, some translations say kingdom, of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Folks, do you understand that God has a kingdom? In other words, if there's a kingdom, there has to be a what? A king. And there is a kingdom that is God's where he rules and reigns. For a season, this world has become the kingdom of who? Of Satan. But when Jesus came on the scene, the kingdom of God arrived. And that's why he was casting out demons. And they said, oh, they said, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he goes, oh, no, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. But if a strong man who's stronger than the strong man comes in and removes him, well, he, is, what is it, this? he puts him this way. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. And Jesus was beginning to show them that there is a greater kingdom than the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God begins in our hearts when we trust him as our savior. He becomes our king. He becomes our Lord. And we can pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth here first. Is this teaching us about the coming kingdom? Without question. As much as we've been brought spiritually from kingdom, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we must not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is teaching us to be looking for the return of Jesus, that he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. And we're going to talk about that real quickly. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard people say, and we're going to look at that passage in a little bit tonight, have heard people say, one day, every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You ever heard people say that? They're quoting scripture. Oh, by the way, have you ever heard them say it with this tone? One day, those suckers are going to get it. Isn't that the kind of tone that they use? One day, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Things in heaven, things on the earth, things under the earth. They're going to do it to the glory of the Father. And they, you hear this tone of, one day, they're all going to acknowledge that he's king. Let me ask you a question. Are you acknowledging he's king today? Because you pridefully act like you know that one day everybody's going to acknowledge he's king, but we're supposed to know he's king now. Those of us who are really children of God will act like God. Those of us who are children of the devil, I don't care how much we claim that God is our father, if we act like the devil, we're not children of God. Now again, don't hear me say if you ever sin, no. But if you make a practice of it, and you're okay with it, you're not his child. The one born of God can't keep on sinning. You're not happy with it. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have been going, planning to go to a big event? And you knew that there was going to be a lot of people going to this event. And so you left early to beat the crowds because you didn't want to get stuck in all that traffic. You got there early to avoid the crowds. Have you ever done that? One day, every knee is going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Beat the rush. Beat the rush. Do it today. Do it today. That's how you get saved. Your kingdom come. Your will be done.
with Jim Johnson. Let it begin here. And then have it manifest itself one day in the whole world, but it needs to start with me. Go ahead. It's both. Again, like I told you, this prayer, this template for prayer is unbelievably deep. It's first, he's, I believe he's pointing to the kingdom coming in to us spiritually. But it's way more than that. Because as you're going to see, the kingdom is also coming on the earth. A physical kingdom is coming on the earth. There are those who believe it's just spiritual, that there is no coming kingdom on the earth. Jesus is not coming to set up his kingdom here. He'll come and take his church and we'll all go to heaven. And they don't believe in an actual literal millennial kingdom on the earth. It's both. It's both. But if it hadn't begun in your heart spiritually, you won't be a part of it physically. Uh, let me show you a couple of things that are kind of cool. Go ahead. The Old Testament did not go away. Oh, we don't have to live under the, the, the rules and regulations. But remember, Jesus himself said after his resurrection, everything written about being the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Still, there's still a whole lot there. It's still tied to us. Go ahead. But his kingdom hadn't come yet. It's come again for those that were here when I taught in Revelation and taught on Ezekiel, and we dealt with this in great detail, I used Gene Mims' teaching from his book, Thine is the Kingdom. And if you want to Google it, find it. Gene Mims, Thine is the Kingdom. He has a wonderful written definition from Scripture of the whole meaning of the kingdom. It talks about how it was pictured in Israel, prophesied by the Old Testament saints, announced by John the Baptist, inaugurated by Christ when he came to the earth. It's carried on right now in the lives of believers through the Spirit of God, and one day will be culminated when Jesus comes back to the earth. That's why there's so much confusion about the kingdom of God is because there's so much about, there's so many aspects of the kingdom of God in the Bible. And people get caught up on one of them and they say, no, no, that says the kingdom's in you. Uh, but it also says the kingdom's still to come when he's talking to believers. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Revelation chapter one. Look at verse eight. This is after his resurrection. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who what? Is to come, the Almighty. Go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, look at verse 7. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look at verses 12 through 13 here in chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We've always seen him as described as the one who it was and is and is to come. Well, go with me real quick to Revelation chapter 11. Something interesting happens in Revelation 11, though. I pointed this out in our Revelation study. Some of you might remember this. Some of you might not have been here. So I want you to see it. In Revelation chapter 11, look at verses 15 through 18 and look at the context. Remember, the book of Revelation jumps all around in, in order. That's why when we taught it, we taught it in chronological order. And in verse 15, we see it's the end of the tribulation period. The seventh angel is going to blow his trumpet. 
The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. By the way, does that sound familiar? Do you want me to sing it? That's the hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. When do they say it finally has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ? At the end of the tribulation period. Oh, but keep reading. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing? Oh, if you have King James, it says, is to come. But that was added. Remember how we did that whole study, how there's different manuscripts? The earliest manuscripts didn't have. Remember in your Lord's Prayer, and thine is the kingdom and the power forever and ever? That's not in the earliest manuscripts. There's nothing wrong with that. It's true, all true, and it matches with Scripture. But most likely that was added. And it's no accident that at this point, the earliest manuscripts don't have and who is to come. Why is who is to come missing here? Because he's come. He's begun to reign. Look at what it says. Who was and who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So in answer to your question, is it spiritual? Yes. Because right now, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom through the lives of those of us who have received him as our Lord and our King, who acknowledge in our bend our knee that he is Lord to the glory of the Father, who acknowledge that it's not my will but your be done, who live our lives in submission to the Father and obedience to his will and led of his spirit. He's the King. But the kingdom has not been fully realized because Satan is still allowed to rule and reign for a season. But there's a time coming when he's going to take his bride or he'll be with him. He's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel and the world. And at the end of it, when he comes back, he begins to reign. And Jesus, who has come in the hearts and lives of those of us who have trusted him and become his children, is still saying, I'm still coming. The kingdom is still coming. Write this down. Look at it later on. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We see that Daniel saw in the night visions, and there was a son, one like the Son of Man, and he was presented before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days handed him a kingdom that would never end. Again, Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians 2. I told you we'd come back to it. Look at it again now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to paraphrase and say, if you're his child. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has this happened yet? then his, the fullness of his kingdom has not come yet. 
Has his kingdom come? Yes. But has his kingdom fully come? Not yet. See the depth of all this? That's why you hopefully hear me say over and over, and I'm going to keep saying it until God takes me. Build your doctrine from the whole of Scripture, not a verse here or a verse there. Too many people listen to shallow teaching, and they'll say, well, my Bible says right here. Well, that's great. You could probably interpret it that way, but if you check it against the whole of Scripture, you realize that can't be the correct interpretation when you put it all together. Now, in the 10 minutes that we have left, I gave you homework last week. Go back to Matthew 6. Remember last week I gave you homework? You had scriptures you had to write, write down and go look up? Hopefully you did it. If you didn't, you can stay after with James and Heather who weren't here. In Matthew chapter 6, he's just taught them to pray to their Father who's in heaven, acknowledge that he's holy and they're not, pray that his kingdom, his rule would come on the earth, and then he says, give us this day our daily bread. So many people think he's teaching us to pray for you to provide for my daily food. You ever heard that? He does care about that, and I can show it to you real quickly. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 25 through 26. He says, therefore, verse 25, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So he does care about food. And he definitely later on in his message talks about that. But I don't believe the first thing he was teaching us to pray was, God, make sure I eat today, physically. He's pointing to, give us this day our daily bread. By the way, real quickly, go to Mark chapter 8. This jumped off the page at me one day while I was preaching and preparing a message of, on the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. In Mark chapter 8, look at verses 1 uh, through 3. This is the story of the feeding of the 4,000. In those days, when again a crowd, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Don't go any further. Meditate on that for a second. And when you meditate on the word, you, you read a section and you stop and you think about it. Let the spirit of God speak to you. What did Jesus just say? He said, guys, um, They've been with me three days. They haven't had anything to eat. If I send them home right now before I feed them, some of them are going to faint on the way. And I don't want that to happen. Oh, and on top of that, I also know how far they've traveled. Some have come from a long way. Folks, God knows whether or not you've eaten. He knows whether or not your bills have been paid. He knows all that stuff. He knows what you're going through. He cares. The Bible says he counts the number of hairs on our head. He keeps our tears in a jar. The Bible's clear. God knows. He cares about our food. So does the Bible teach that God wants us to eat? Yes. Does he care about that? Yes. Keep that in mind because we're going to be dealing with fasting once we finish the Lord's Prayer. That's the very next section. So eat before that study. So go to Exodus, though. Go to Exodus chapter 16, and let me show you what Jesus was referring to when he said, Give us this day our daily bread. In Exodus chapter 16... Look at verses 1 through 4. 
The nation of Israel, as you know, is wandering in the wilderness. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people uh, of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. By the way, real quick aside, don't be in a hurry to be a leader in the church. It's not fun. Oh, and by the way, who actually brought them into the wilderness? Was it Moses and Aaron? I mean, good grief, God had been leading with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, yet they still blamed man. But look what happens next. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, verse 4, I'm about to bring to rain bread from heaven for you and the people. So you and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. And as you to read on, if you know the story, he said that every day there was going to be this like dew that came over the ground and they were to go gather it up. They called it manna because that meant what is it? But they were to take how much? One day's portion. If they tried to gather enough for tomorrow, what happened to it? It spoiled and rotted. But then on the day before the Sabbath, they took it and they had enough for two days. And what happened? It didn't rot. But he was teaching them to walk with him and to listen. But he was pointing them to something else much greater. Go to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Now I'm going to read this fairly quick because we've got five minutes left and we're going to make it. John chapter 6, look at verses 25 through 59. When they found him, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, and he went across the lake walking on the water, remember? They found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't miss this. Jesus said, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has, sent, has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. By the way, that settles all the arguments on whether or not you could lose your salvation. All the other verses that talk about it, and there's many, that one settles it. He'll lose none. You'll keep reading and you'll see. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given me, but to raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's a big difference between hearing and listening. Everyone hears, not everyone listens. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who's from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Look at this again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me... Uh, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. By the way, real quickly, that's why some people teach that the, when you take the Lord's Supper, that it becomes the actual body and the blood of Christ because you have to eat on his flesh and drink his blood. No, 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 no. Remember when Jesus was in the upper room and he was doing the Lord's Supper with them there? And he said, this is my body. This is my blood. By the way, had he been crucified yet? Had he been broken? No, he was standing there fully whole and he had no cuts yet. But he said, this is my body. It was, it's pointing to something. It's, it's a picture of something. So let me ask you a question as we close. How do you eat Jesus's flesh? How do you drink his blood? Verse 63. Yep. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. How do you eat his flesh and drink his blood? Okay, keep going. By faith. You believe in the one that the Father has sent. You believe that his body was broken for your sins. His blood was shed for your sins. And by faith, you receive that and you receive eternal life. By the way, you can understand how the people go, this doesn't make any sense at all. Listen closely. If you're sitting here today and it makes sense to you, it wasn't because I explained it in a great way, because I just didn't. And guess what? I intentionally didn't. So it's your faith may not rest on man's wisdom and plausible words, but on the power of God. Paul says, if what I'm sharing with you makes sense, God opened your eyes. If it doesn't make sense, Satan's blinded you. Folks, let me ask you today. Do you know that you've eaten of the flesh of Jesus and drank of his blood? And you know that you're going to heaven when you die? The father opened your eyes and you're his child. Well, he's the father of all. But he wants to have you become his children. And you do that for faith in Jesus Christ. You see how the Lord's prayer definitely covers the prayers for Christians, but he's showing them how to be saved. There's a depth for the lost and a debt for the saved. 
and we'll continue on in this awesome prayer next week. See you then. Love you.